Today, I get to talk to Dave Spies. I met with him at The Habit, wonderful cafe that's also a shelter, that's also a not-for-profit organization built by a few people that really got the idea in their head that there's all this amazing space so where people like to be in in the natural neighborhood hubs owned by churches, underused, and transformed a beautiful old church into this multifaceted place to gather for community and find shelter and food as well when needed. So we were up in the very funky cafe. You'll hear noise in the background. And we was me and Dave Spies, who is the Thunder Bay chapter lead of Protect Our Winters Canada. And he's also a third-year student over at Lakehead University, which is Boralaskan Faculty of Law, just across the park from that cafe. His research focuses on the intersection of environmental law, indigenous rights, public lands defense, and international law. And that came up as we talked to get to know each other a bit better and also to prepare for how we all want to take part in the Northwest Climate Gathering happening in Thunder Bay and online on November 25th and 26th. Um, I just so enjoyed talking to him. It was a pleasure, and I know you will too. I did write him a song inspired by some of the uh, the things that he shares in this conversation, so I'm not going to give you too much of a taste of it because I don't want to spoil the surprise. But here's the chorus. Protect our winters, we've just got this planet, we've got today. Let's all make a difference in what we do and what we say. Protect our go. I don't want to wait too much longer. This is me talking to Dave Spies at The Habit in Thunder Bay. So we, I met you because I saw Protect Our Winters. It came up in a conversation in August and somebody's like, I saw that they have a Protect Our Winters opening in Thunder Bay. I'm so excited. So I went looking and I found you online and therefore I have been seeing you post pictures. This avowed winter dude does not stay inside in the summertime. Like, what have been your impressions of northwestern Ontario? I mean, it seems like you're out a lot. I try to get out as much as possible. Uh, I'm lucky that my girlfriend's really outdoorsy, and when we moved here, kind of made this agreement with each other that we were going to get out at least once a week and start checking off the list of things we wanted to see. And we're not even halfway through. Like, northern, like this area, like northwestern Ontario is phenomenal. Like, I cannot believe how much there is to do here. Like, every single day. It's like, okay, I could go check out the sunrise at James Duncan this week, go to Mink Mountain the week after that, head over to Nipigon and check out the Palisades there. Just so many different things to do. And where, you, where did you come from to come here? So right before I came up here, I was in Ottawa, did my undergraduate degree at Carleton and transnational law and human rights. And then I was working in the city a little bit during COVID and then got my law school acceptance and Thunder Bay it was. Did you grow up there as well? Are you a Laurentian's guy? Uh, no, actually. So I grew up in the Kingston area. My family's originally from Gananoque, about 20 minutes east of Kingston, Thousand Islands region. Um, so grew up there and then just went to Ottawa for school and loved it and stayed a little bit after and then moved up here. And what's the sport that got you into Protect Our Winters? 
Uh, it was downhill skiing, without a doubt. Uh, my parents aren't big hockey fans. It's dangerous. I don't know how skiing isn't as dangerous as hockey, but to like kind of transition my brother and I into something outdoorsy in the winter, we went on family ski trips on Saturdays up to a Calabogie near Kingston, and I learned to ski there, and then got to Ottawa, my undergrad, and realized I was 15 minutes from Camp Fortune just under two hours from Tremblant and I'm like well those are some pretty nice hills to go ski at so started skiing there all the time and then uh, when Pow first came to Canada I saw that they were coming through Ottawa and we're gonna have this hey here's who we are here's what's going on and just prior to that I'd emailed the U.S. asking if there's any opportunity to start something in Canada related to this and they told me to hang tight there's big news coming and it was it was the arrival of Pow in Canada so then as soon as I heard that the Ottawa chapter was going to be opening its doors. I went to the sign-up night and have been part of it since then. Why? Why were you so interested in being a part of this? I think a big part of my interest in it is that I've kind of seen the first-hand effects of climate change um, and then have had friends and family members and other colleagues, people I know, show me the really drastic changes that have occurred. I mean, I saw photos of glaciers in Whistler that since the 80s have completely disappeared and there's areas where there's ski infrastructure because people were skiing into June and July there and they're torn down. It's nothing but rock and gravel at this point in time. And I love to ski. I love to ski new places. And if those places are starting to disappear, it's really scary. Um, I know a lot of... uh, people in the outdoor industry you hear about like first ascents all the time and like Alex Honnold is doing his the free solo of El Cap and the first time for anything and in recent years something that started to appear more and more often is final descents which is a really scary thing to think about and the idea that this is it like someone is more than likely skiing that line or that mountain for the very last time and knowing that that's a, a true reality just makes me have to take some sort of action of some sort. Yeah, that's really on this computer that I'm recording on. Um, the 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 homepage. I think I can re- show it to you and still record. So this is a picture I took when I grew up. I lived in Alberta, and my dad worked at the Banff uh, School of the Arts. So every summer he would save money by tenting there all summer long, and we would go every weekend and a couple weeks of the summer. So that was my mountains growing up. At any rate, I took my kids out last summer so they could see my mountains. And uh, this is a beautiful picture, except the glaciers are gone. Like that, I know that mountain, and it's bare. You see these little pockets of snow? That was a that was a helicopter to the top and wild ski down mountain. This is a picture of what was no longer there that I remember when I when I was there in the 80s and I remember climate change in the 80s I remember when I was in high school and university and we're like holy shit this is like a big deal we gotta tackle and somehow it has not been tackled and also the projections of how bad could it be right underestimated just what the hell's going on here it, it really is. I know that in my research at school, I've been pulling a lot of data from the Lake Superior watershed region. And one of the stats that I read is coming out of Duluth, and it's projections that the Duluth to Thunder Bay region will achieve the same average climate as the current Northern California, San Francisco Bay area within the next 50 to 65 years. And coming from southern Ontario to Thunder Bay and having a week straight of negative 35 temperatures my first year here was shocking to the system. 
and thinking that there could be a 30 degree nearly change in my lifetime in this region is hard to wrap my head around. It's, it's devastating. Yeah. What kind of things has Protect Our Winters done already that, that you feel is so what wants you to be part of this group? I think something that Protect Our Winters has done that I absolutely love is create this community of individuals. And it's a community of individuals based on a passion for the outdoors, a passion to protect them, but also a passion for each other. And the team that I've worked alongside over the years has been amazing. It's changing, new faces show up and old faces leave, but everyone is wonderful. And I really have had the opportunity to connect and know people who I would have never had the opportunity to meet before. And their knowledge and expertise has helped me make decisions in my life that are having positive impacts on people on the planet. I mean, here I am today having this conversation because of POW. That's awesome. It's so cool. And I, I, I love that about it. I just, I, I love it. I did the love the last picture that I saw you post on social media, all ready for the snow to hit. Because I, I saw that picture, I come to meet with you, and I see these transports coming from the northwest here where there's been a major snow dump with the big chunks of snow on them, and I thought, it is coming. Oh, winter is on its way, and I cannot be more excited. I'm just, I'm curious, again, because this will be my third winter in Thunder Bay, and currently there's like a 50-50 split for me on the winter season, which I think is very predictive of climate change here, that two years ago I was skiing in mid-May here. Last year I wasn't skiing in April. And that, I thought mid-May skiing was unreal. And then I realized that might not necessarily be the norm. It was not that long ago, might not be now. So I'm very curious about going into this season what it's going to be like. And I didn't know, I in my research that I've done at school, um, I, this was a, a fact that I learned about Lake Superior that just completely astounded me, but Lake Superior has 60 days less of ice coverage now than in 1967. And the result of that is 60 days of temperatures higher than zero that used to be below. And the drastic impact that that has had on the environment. I mean, I'm all for a little bit of a warmer spring and a nice fall, but that is a severe change to the winter conditions. and everything that has revolved for thousands of years around that cycle of seasons having to adapt to such a sudden sudden change like that is it's it's hard to understand and you you see it start to pop its head up across all different kind of geographical regions here where unfortunately the hills don't have the snow that they used to and i'm backcountry skiing if i want to find those little stashes in may instead and losing out on that opportunity that other generations had and we might never get to experience again well, until we've drawn it all down over the generations and the world amazes us with its ability to reinvent itself back to health. Absolutely. I, I, that's something I always say. So there's no winning and losing this fight because we lose every single time. This is not that scene in the Avengers where they calculate their percentage and they've got this one in a bazillion chance to, to pull things through. And of course they do. We don't have that. If we don't put up this fight, we're going to lose. And we need to create some sort of change if we want to keep going and being as happy and healthy as we have been. And it's not just stopping putting too much carbon in the air. It's deepening the resilience and power of our wild places because they're the best lungs the planet has for pulling that carbon back down and, and capturing it. 
They really are. And they're also the places, as we've talked about, that are important for us to still have access to. And I think that's something when we're talking as a community and people who have expertise and are working in different fields is something that can be brought together in that knowledge space and say that, hey, Thunder Bay has a lot of people moving here. This region has a lot of refugees showing up. A lot of people from southern Ontario who are economic refugees seeking a spot where they can actually afford to raise a family and own a piece of property. And we also need to to, to learn and, and, and be proactive about that situation and know that we can't keep expanding out and cutting down and reducing those wild spaces that are around. We need to find these viable alternatives, whether that's going up or adjusting the current infrastructure to meet those demands. But we can't sacrifice the minimal land that's left for our own greed. We, we need to be able to adapt and make sure that we're living alongside it. Yeah, that's a huge thing. If you live anywhere else in Canada, the lack of density of this city is mind-boggling. How much infrastructure we have, how many empty buildings we have, how many empty fully-serviced lots we have, right? The opportunities are, are so easier here than other places. We can do this. And even in other places, I think the opportunities are huge. One of my favorite things to show people is to is, is just to try to find images that exemplify how much space our cars and vehicles take up compared to us as humans. And when you start looking around, especially even in Thunder Bay here, you look like the superstore parking lot. That parking, like, why, why, why do we need a parking lot if for every single person in the city to come at the exact same time on the exact same day? That's never going to happen. The lot's like half full at best most days. How much space are we wasting? How much? How many more of these areas can we adjust? What What is that going to take? And I think that's why gatherings like the one in November are important because we're bringing in the voices and the people who may have the expertise or the knowledge about that to say, hey, I never, I didn't think about that necessarily. Here's that change that we can implement or here's someone you can talk to about why that needs to change and who knows what comes out of that. So it's hard to face the facts and still face the future with aplomb and confidence that at least I'm going to be part of the solution. So how do you do that? I think I find the confidence in community and the people that I'm around and I I see changes are occurring and I see the growth. I see people join the POW chapter here. I see membership increasing across Canada. I see my friends taking steps and making initiatives in their own lives to just, even if they're just small things like swapping out plastic bags or having a reusable water bottle and fork and knife that they take places with them. Like little things like that are just what is the inspiring thing. And I know that the big picture changes can come. I mean, like, I'm I'm a law student. I read cases every single week where it was one person who started a kind of kerfuffle about something that they were upset about, and it works its way through to change the laws, and that those laws can still be in effect 50, 60, 200 years later. And that's the amazing part is I know that it can all come down to just one person who decides to make a change, and I think there's a lot of positivity in that. And I also think we're much better at paying attention to the bad news than the good news. And, uh, and we're kind of hardwired to um, give up. Like our brains are so dependent on habits. You know, like we literally couldn't do all the things we do in a day if we didn't do most of it by habits. So when we're contemplating with our rational mind a significant change, our brain defends its habits with this huge wash of emotions. Like, no, that'll never happen, or that'll just be too hard, or, you know, people will hate you if you dare say stuff like that. So having community that that share your goals and and celebration of success 
is really helpful. Yeah. I love that you're finding hope in the law too, because I worry about the law and how it's, it's slow to change. And a lot of its assumptions have been proven wrong. Um, like I'm in finance. And so the, the finance world has been slowly accrued on a base of families are one person who's responsible for everybody else who are their dependents. And even though that's not really the truth anymore, we haven't unshackled the basic understanding. We, we just kind of try to accommodate it and interpret it differently. And it gets awfully cumbersome and sometimes very ineffective, right? So as a student of the law, I'm happy to hear the hope you have that change does happen, even if it's not like a, well, we should do this differently and therefore we will. Yeah, absolutely. The The change in law is it, so interesting to look at because it, it, it doesn't happen overnight when you're in the process of creating it. But when you look at the impact of it once it has been created, I think that's where you can really see the effectiveness and how efficiently it can come in. Um, I think about a lot of things that have changed even in my lifetime. Like I'm only 26 years old and same-sex marriage has become legalized and today isn't blinked at, no questions about it. And that's only in the last 10, 15 years that that change has occurred. But as soon as the legislation caught up to society, passed its regulations society took it in and has adopted it and i think that that's also another positivity that can come out of it is when you do see these large social issues that impact people across genders and generations when people actually voice their opinion and get together change occurs and the slow part of the change is kind of like what we're facing with climate change it has been slow in the past and we've been ignoring it but as soon as that rush has just increased now there's like now is the time to be doing something about it and there has been a lot of progress on on climate change. I mean, again, we, we don't we don't have. When I was in Scotland um, a long time ago already, my sister's wedding, they already had a system in place to help people every day track on their news releases and on community spaces how well they were meeting their goal towards greater autonomy, energy autonomy, and autonomy from fossil fuels. So it was just part of what was around you all the time. And the place where we would have coffee um, was frequented by people that work for the city, like that would where they'd come in for their breakfast after their early morning shift. And so when they'd meet one of those goals, all of their little beepers on their belts would go beep, 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 right? We've just achieved 12 hours of nothing but renewable energy in the town of Glasgow or whatever. And we haven't got those markers. But we do know that just a few years ago, the worry was we'd be at 4.2% global warming. And now they're thinking, well, we're going to have a tough time making it to 2%. But we've, we've almost halved the worry level already just by all kinds of too many things for one person to keep track of. All those changes do, do add up. And it's, it's, uh, it can be a tipping point. But you can also pay attention and say, oh, no, we're getting towards the middle of the seesaw. Absolutely. And I think being here in Canada, we do end up kind of like isolated in our thinking as well. Um, and we forget about all the international examples that are out there because so much of our media and cultures drive from the states and from our own region that it's it's an area that we're very dependent on fossil fuels. We don't necessarily live close to each other. I mean, especially here in Thunder Bay, we're six and a half hours from the nearest place that has 100,000 people. Like it's a it's a drive just to get there. And I think that that kind of 
jumps into like our previous chat about habits like it becomes the habit of us that we have this reliance on these fossil fuels and we don't really look to other places to see what change is going on whereas you can look across the globe and especially like the european and scandinavian nations are, are just bounds and leaps ahead of us in that sense and you can see that there there's that hope out there and it exists and we can learn from these examples i know in law one of the biggest things the court relies on is precedent what have we said about this topic before? What are other courts saying about this topic? And I really love looking at international precedents in my work for what are other countries doing? Like what is happening in New Zealand? What's happening in Australia? What's happening in Ireland, Scotland, Britain? What can I learn from those places and incorporate here? And oftentimes I find that it's ideas that we would consider radical almost, but in other places, it's completely acceptable. I know a lot of South American countries, Bolivia and Ecuador in particular, are fantastic on their legal regime for the na- for nature and protecting the environment. I mean, we've seen rivers being awarded legal personhood there, have the ability to sue corporations for polluting in them. Ideas that are just starting to bubble in Canada and the U.S., but haven't really taken over the whole legal scheme at this point. Yeah, there are so many precedents that we that don't make the daily news because they take a while to happen, too. They're not like, there was a thing today that came out of nowhere and we thought we should all tell you all about it. But if it had been brewing for a long, long, long time, it might never make the headlines, no. right? Um, so thinking about Thunder Bay, because you're new here, and I think in some ways our insularity, the fact that we are somewhat autonomous by necessity, can give us some opportunities to realize change quite quickly. You know, the, the seven degrees of separation where they found that there were a few people that seemed to be connected to many circles. And if you got information to them, you were never more than seven people away from anybody, right? Because they were like the the spider holders of our social networks. Uh, I, we say in Thunder Bay, it's never more than two. You're never more than two away from somebody else in Thunder Bay. And that could be a huge power, the power of connecting to one another. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I've really learned since I got to Thunder Bay is it's a city with a small town attitude. Um, it's funny that there's a population of 110,000 people here because I've never waited in line for coffee, barely. Like, it's we're only 10,000 people less here than Kingston where I grew up, and it feels like two completely different places. And, like, I, I love that about Thunder Bay is it really does feel like a communal space. Um, I, I, it's an interesting spot to be. Like, it really does feel like the intersection between East and West. I love the spring and the fall when people who are going from one side of the nation to the other coming through town and you see all the really cool rigs and vehicles and rvs and converted buses and it's like okay look at all the hippies coming through this is fantastic um but i find that like that really even just adds to the actual community itself who are here because we all look at each other and say yeah i mean we're not leaving town when the weather gets bad we're here and we're in it together and i think that's really important especially when it comes to things like the climate solutions we we need to be working together and it doesn't matter what age gender race you are everyone's in this together it impacts all of us equally and i do think there's an opportunity when it comes to age too because here in thunder bay there was this time about decades you can look at it in the architecture and see when most people felt there was no future for them here and they left so everybody's kids left but they stayed they got the job out of high school that kept them until they retired and they're only just retiring now so there's this this little status in who lives here and what they're used to um, that is being challenged now because people are retiring so they're ready to reboot 
And people are moving here because they can afford to live here, and they're discovering it through our schools as well. And there's this opportunity to kind of really build new vibrant connections between different generations that can allow us again to figure out whole new ways of solving old problems. And trying to figure out how to solve old problems is something that seems to just constantly be popping its head back into the conversation again. Like the amount of conversations I've had in this city where it's people who lived here when it was two cities and the differences that have occurred in the time since then. But more often than not, it's this, like the same stuff that's going on. And it's those constant, consistent cycles and problems that people seem to bring up and introduce that really like drives the idea of like, how can we create this change? I mean, when you, even when you look at like, the environmental issues, we're chatting about dumping nuclear waste in northern Ontario now. There's plenty of evidence that the last time they dumped a bunch of waste into the mouth of the Cam River, we killed all the fish in the bay and completely ruined the superior fishery in that like localized area that Fort William First Nation was depending on as well. That was, you know, 25 years ago. And then here we are again discussing these more issues of contaminating the land, let's contaminate the water. And it's, that's why I think it's most important to bring the generations together because you have the generation that's seen it occur and can recognize the pattern for when it's coming again. And then you've got the younger generation who has the energy, the voice, and the want for change because it impacts them the most are willing to take those steps to say hey here's what our older generation is telling us here's what you need to do to fix it so that we're happy because we're the ones who are impacted by this yeah and also more uh, elastic brains that can kind of invent a different way to do things and and broader spheres of influence that can go looking out and saying what internationally are there that could inform us as we try to decide what we want here on this land that we love and we share a love for Absolutely. And I I think that especially in an area like this with a large indigenous population next to a large colonial population is a pressing topic. I mean, we have international examples of indigenous protected and conserved areas where biodiversity, flora and fauna are absolutely flourishing. And legally, it's management of lands by the traditional caretakers of it. And that's something that we aren't seeing over here as often. We're seeing a little bit of it growing out west and a bit of it in the east coast. But in Ontario in particular, in this kind of center part of Canada, we're missing that. Every single day, if you're a resident of Thunder Bay, you look out a window, you can see the sleeping giant. Very important traditional land for Fort William First Nation, yet it's a provincial park. There's no indigenous involvement in the management, in the care for it. And when you walk through it in the summers, especially with all the forest fires we've been experiencing, you can look around and and understand that this is a culturally and spiritually very significant place, and it is a tinderbox. It is ready to go up in flames at any point in time, and I'm sure we're in that future where we might even be seeing that in the next five to ten years. And for a region that attracts people because of its natural beauty, this lack of respect for caretaking for it and making sure that it's still here for generations to come is is appalling at times but there's also lots of hope in it because I don't know if I've ever been to a city with an outdoor community like Thunder Bay has Um, you hear about like these outdoor adventure meccas in the U.S. and in Canada like everyone talks about the North Shore in Vancouver and you hear about Banff and you hear about Moab in Utah but like Thunder Bay's got a lot of pretty cool stuff going on my first year here I woke up one day and could ski, surf, and go for a skateboard in the same day. 
and I don't think there's a lot of places on the planet that you can achieve all three of those things and and do it within 24 hours and that really just speaks to the uniqueness of where we are yeah yeah and also what I love about what you said is um is having the courage to say this needs proactive attention um, not just, oh, it hasn't happened to us yet. At least the fires happened somewhere else this summer, you know, at, at least whatever. But really, what can we do? It's not a question of if, it's when. So what can we do? And so there's, there's forest management, there's wateries management. You've mentioned both. Refugee management, right? We're losing, literally losing, livable parts of our planet to this crisis. We already have a refugee crisis everywhere. We're already noticing people moving here at a rate we haven't seen in a long time. Let's own that. We have been a a refuge for people that are suffering calamities in their home fly-in communities for decades, and we're still not very good at it. We really could talk to the people whom we have housed and, and, and offered refuge to and said, how can we do this better and up our game? the information is easy to get to because they've been coming here, right? And then imagine ourselves needing to go there because we're the one who have hit the crazy storm that brought down everything or the fire or whatever the heck it is. How would we like to be housed in an emergency like that? And how can we offer that to everybody who comes here to study, to start over again because they lost their home or to get by until they can go back to their home? I love that thought that we have an opportunity here to learn and and get ahead of the game. Yeah, I think being proactive is one of the most important things to be because when you're being reactive, you've you've already let it occur and there's no going back. And that's a big thing. I think we need to like incorporate that more into our relationships with people and the environment that we live in and and recognize that the impact we're having can be reversed, that we can do something about it so that these negative results from our actions aren't going to come back and bite us in the butt in 5, 10, 15 years or even two months down the road. There's, I think being proactive is kind of the necessity at this point because we've passed the point where we can just be reactive. And we have all these tools because the things that that the habits the structures that allow us to get so much done every day they're ours like the law what's decisions we made that we decided to keep you know that worked the first time let's build on that one right the laws the corporate structures and the financial structures they're ours we can change them right and it as you said it might take just one person but if it's a group of people that proactively say you know what i think this might work better, or this really is not working as intended. Have the courage to own that opinion and support it. And it's amazing what you can accomplish. Not like that, but faster than you think. It's, it's amazing. I always laugh at us Canadians because like, we, we're often very critical of other places and the way that they organize and structure themselves. And even in conversation with c- colleagues and friends this week following the events in Maine, Everyone's saying, well, how come the U.S. hasn't gotten a handle on gun control yet? When are they going to be proactive about this, realize they have an issue, and deal with it before it gets worse, if that's possible? And I said, I know. And we do the same sort of thing here. It might not be as in-your-face front headlines as gun violence is, but we're pumping money into the oil and gas industry left, right, and center, even though it's costing us our entire future, but we're not asking any questions about it. 
or just turning a blind eye because it doesn't have that flashy headline. It's not as controversial as some people might think it is. It's one-sided. We, we know that it's happening. There are things we're not being proactive about that we really should be because we're going to be put in a position where we have to be reactive to it and it's not going to look pretty. Mm. I don't know how many interviews I've now heard with leadership in energy industries and, and once they focus on making the current industry less carbon producing than it is, as opposed to ramping it down because it needs to go. The, the final line is always, I just want to, we're going to have the, the last barrel of oil sold because it's the best barrel of oil ever produced. I'm like, really? That's what we're hanging our economy on? Trying to be the last of a dying industry? When we have all these transferable skills, we have all these other capacities that we could build upon. And it's not a switch, obviously. It's a transition. But if you own it as a transition, you're going to accomplish it. Oh, absolutely. We know how to do this stuff. We're Canadians. <laughs> I mean, like, if you look, look back at history, do you think every civilian in the nation said, yeah, we're going to blast a railroad from coast to coast across this thing through the mountains and over the prairies? Not a chance. We did it. It happened. Why can't we do that with an electrical vehicle system? Why can't we do that with hydropowered trains? Why can't we do that in ways that are positive for the planet? We've shown we're capable of doing it when there's a bottom dollar that's going to look nice for the corporations and look nice for the government. But why can't we transition that into something that's going to look nice for the people? And I love that idea where you said that we can change lots of things, including what gets under my skin all the time, is this colonial assumption that everybody's ranked, you know, that you're disposable potentially. If you don't work out as a valuable worker, then you could lose everything. And New York City, I was just reading in the New Yorker. I did not know this. New York City declared in the 1980s that they were going to eradicate homelessness in one of the most densely populated and most expensive to live in cities in the world. And they have. And in the 40 years since they did that, I had no idea they'd done that. The 40 years since they did that, what they learned was um, their instinct, which was to make it cheap, make it uh, temporary, make it unattractive so that people would just have somewhere to sleep and a bowl of soup to eat and it would get them through because that would somehow motivate you to go back to being a housed and working citizen does not work. What instead is cheaper, way cheaper and more effective is respect and give people money and give them health care opportunities. They will try to get healthy, and they will spend their money on their needs, and they will find more inventive solutions than you could ever impose on them by trying to cookie cutter. You know, as diverse a population as New York City attracts, you know, it's a place where it never sleeps. They've got all kinds of sorts, right? any rate, so again, precedents in other cities, there's so many ways where we've proven to ourselves that it's actually a lot more cost efficient to just take care of one another to just be respectful and treat all as equals, than to put a lot of walls up so that people don't, I don't know, suddenly turn into sloths that, that never want to contribute to their own community. That's not how we're built. Anyway, that's my skin under my thing. I don't know if that's even what you're looking at. You're looking at the environment. Does that resonate for you, though? Uh, absolutely it does. I mean, just... Everyone seems to live in this world, and I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around like the disconnect that individuals have between ourselves and the natural environment. It's like almost like we've forgotten that we breathe that air and drink that water. And we've gotten so comfortable with the ability to just turn on a tap and have clean water in a majority of our cities that 
we don't even think about it. We don't question where anything comes from. We don't think about the sources of our food. And we've kind of lost that connection to what goes on around us. And I think that's really been one of the driving factors that is causing all these issues in societies. We've lost that baseline from where we came from. And I don't know, the people I talk to that go outside and breathe fresh air and drink clean water are happy, healthy, and very enjoyable people to be around. And it's like, I I saw it myself when I was living in in Ottawa, Harvey Specter was my dream. I was like, I'm going to be Harvey Specter. Who is Harvey Specter? Harvey Specter is the main character on Suits, um, just a lawyer TV show. But you know, he's tall, handsome, kicks a lot of butt in courtrooms and wears fancy suits, dates beautiful women and has a fancy apartment. And I was like, fantastic. If that's a lineup that I can get myself, I can do that. That's going to be amazing. And then I started that lifestyle and started working around people who had that kind of mentality every day and realized that, like, there's no community here. It's all competition. It's cutthroat. People are mean. And mentally, I'm very unhappy. And I don't want to be here anymore. And then the ski hole opened for the first day after COVID. And I went skiing and I can remember giggling coming down that first green run and being like, this is what life is all about. It's not about the fancy office and the suit and the nice car. It's about being in the moment and enjoying exactly where I am. And I think that's something I've like taken with me since then and have learned that like, hey, it, it's really all about making sure that we're happy and healthy and protecting our plan and just kind of a necessity to reach that point for everyone. And I think that as soon as everyone, I think if everyone went outside every day, we wouldn't have as many problems as we do right now. I think we'd all be a lot happier. <laughs> yeah, with the right clothes, for sure. Like some basics and some nice warm food to come home to. But absolutely, I agree with you. I remember when I lived in Montreal as a poor student without a car and living in little apartments, you know, where you'd walk up the stairs outside to get to the apartment and you'd have a little balcony and maybe you could walk to a park, but that park would be just like a narrow, shoveled walkway with no real vistas. And then you discover the mountain with everybody else. And you would just make your weekly pilgrimage, some excuse to go where there was bush. And you could take off into that bush and roll around in the snow and, you know, notice a squirrel or whatever. It just, it added so much health to your life. And then every once in a while I get an opportunity to get out of the city and go, you know, the Laurentians or something and have a day of something. And it would feel like a year off and it would be a day and here in Thunder Bay we have those wild places walking distance of most places and and the drive is close to but we don't gift that to each other as a citizen's right right it's still a privilege yeah absolutely I mean in my third week in Thunder Bay I was driving home from class and there was a bear standing at the intersection of Golf Links and Harbor Expressway, which if you're not from Thunder Bay is a busy intersection with a lot of cars. And I was just shocked. I was like, there's no way that the nature of the city is like in the city. And then I brought my younger brother up here for his first time. And there were deer walking down the sidewalk when we were out in the evening. And I said, this is, this is, this is the real life. Like this is the real world. We're just in a position where you've kind of forgotten that because you've been living in Ottawa for the last five years and have missed out on the nature of it all but I think that's really like something that's missing in community and human connections in general is we're missing that time outside of our created environments and we've created these environments to comfort us and help those who are in positions of privilege already and I think that kind of adds to this cycle where we 
keep making the same decisions that are causing future harm for other generations because we're comfortable where we are. We don't have that discomfort. And I always say that there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad attitudes and improper clothing. And I think that when you kind of adapt that resolution, very similar to like a Finnish idea of Sisu that we hear a lot in Thunder Bay here, is that like there's this resilience in the human spirit. And when we're given the opportunity to make a change that we see as being necessary or something that's going to be beneficial to us and the people we love about, we're willing to do it. We make sacrifices we commit to the decisions that we make and we dedicate ourselves to doing what we can to better ourselves and others. And I think that's beautiful and a great part of the human experience. I love it. So at the gathering of those two days, the thought is to kind of start out getting to know each other better and then dig into what do we agree we hope for and what are actions we agree we would like to support and then set some goals we can achieve in the year. And the hope is that in fact we're seeding all these relationships and beginnings of ideas that will root off from those shared ones and surprise us over the course of the year and, and, and grant us more opportunities to do things we feel good about and own this city in a way of, of love and respect and hope that not only can we get through this crisis, not only can we be less of a bad player in contributing to it, but it can be an opportunity to come out the other side knowing ourselves better, liking ourselves better, and owning some decisions that made a real impact. Absolutely. I'm so excited for the event just to have the opportunity to meet the community members who have the same mindset as I do and are interested and curious about the issues and achieve and hear those different perspectives. I mean, I've never been in any atmosphere or setting in my life where talking to someone I haven't met before hasn't offered me an opportunity for education. And that is so cool. It does not matter what walk of life you come from, what your previous experience is, everyone has something to teach someone else. And when you bring together a group of individuals who have shared passion and you start putting all those teachings and ability to educate together, I think the potential for change is huge. And that's exciting. Thank you for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed this. Oh, this has been fantastic. Thank you for having me. There you have it. That's Dave Spies, the Thunder Bay lead of Protect Our Winters Canada. And one of the people coming to the Northwest Climate Gathering. I'll have a link to the website and the registration on my website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes. So you too can register or just check it out if you'd like. Also, there you can find the lyrics and chords for this song that I was inspired to write for Dave after that conversation. Protect our winters, we've just got this planet, and we've got today. Let's all make a difference in what we do and what we say. Protect our winters. Face to face with a bear at Harborview and Balmoral. Stop traffic while company. Neighbors in the city that cares Protect our winters We've just got this planet We've got today Let's all make a difference In what we do and what we say Protect our winters Our outdoors 
outdoor bucket list weekly adventures. Ski, surf, and even skateboard in a day Thunder Bay adventure mecca. Protect our winters. We've just got this planet. We've got today. Let's all make a difference in what we do. What we say, protect our winters. I found myself laughing as I skied downhill. In the fresh air, the beauty and the company of so many people who care. Protect our winters, we've just got today. Let's all make a difference in what we do and what we say. Protect our winters with what we do and with what we say. Protect our winters. <laughs> One of the things I love about talking with Dave is he's like a nerd. He's got the facts. He's got it straight. I said in there, I said, it's hard to face the facts and still face the future. And I think that's true. But when you find the strength to do that and the courage, what joy he brings to this, what hope and what willingness to act and faith in the power of those actions. I just love the inspiration he finds in legal precedent. I mean, that's a pretty slow to change, well-defended, deeply established structure that we build our world around. And he sees its malleability. And I love that. My name's Heather McLeod. You can hear more conversations and monologues and songs at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. You can also join my weekly email where I give you a bit of behind the scenes and additional insight into that week's episode. I only send one out a week and only when we're in a season. And this season will conclude in December. This whole season, I'm focused on the people coming together at the Northwest Climate Gathering which is coming up on November 25th and 26th. We have just launched the website. I say we because I'm, I'm one of the people helping organize this. And uh, I will include a link to it in the podcast notes for this episode. You can register as well. It's free. In fact, if you couldn't come unless somebody helped you pay some cost, like missing a day at work or paying a babysitter, we have financing to help you come anyways. It's pretty darn cool that we can do this, and I really hope to see you there. I'll be back next week with another guest. And hope to see you listening then, too. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different.